got your Bibles, I really encourage you to open them to Matthew chapter 22. This is our second last week going through Matthew. It's only taken us four years uh, to work our way through the book as I drop all my uh, various bits and pieces I stuff into the back of my Bible. Um, We've had, as I said earlier, we've had a really special week, uh, over 60, well, we've 61 prayer requests came through. One, uh, one lady sent two of them through and uh, over, the, uh, over uh, 50 of them were for people just in the Hobart area. And uh, it's been sobering. I don't know, for those who've been part of it, it's really lovely to hear from our small groups where people have been praying for people. Uh, but just helps you understand some of the real needs in the community as we hear uh, from all kinds of people with all kinds of needs. One of the things that's also happened is we've heard from people that are a bit offended uh, that Christians would be asking to pray for people. Uh, and so it's been fascinating because people, we've been, Gus was talking about how uh, people have different ways of seeing things and some people think they're very rational and try and work things out with their heads and scientific. And, and so we've had uh, some offensive kinds of responses from people uh, and some uh, people who tried to argue the point. Uh, there was uh, one person who told me that all the world's evils come from religion, uh, which is interesting. I mean, the, the fact that uh, all religions get grouped into one thing is one thing. And, and, and as I pointed out to him, though, some of the worst atrocities of the 20th century were perpetuated or were perpetrated by atheistic regimes. Stalin and Pol Pot uh, were the worst, in terms of percentage of people killed in their nations, they were the worst things that happened through the 20th century. I had, then had another person come in and say, so... Let me tell you, can answer this question for me. Uh, are all genocides evil? Now, if you've been around Christian apologetics and that kind of thing, you probably know what's coming next. You can sort of spot it a mile off. Because uh, what he was very quick to point out is, look at the Old Testament and what God seems to say about Canaan and, and, and what in apologetic, apologetics is just a word to describe, it's, you know, it's an unfortunate word, it sounds like you're apologising, doesn't it? But, it? but it's just a word to describe giving reasons for the faith. And, and in, that, in that world, uh, they talk about the Canaanite genocide as part of the Old Testament. Uh, and it was, it was interesting just hearing the different arguments, and so I, I pointed out to this person who brought that up, that that's not a a particularly new thing to be talking about, but thanks for that all the same. And there was actually a, a, a podcast uh, by a fellow called John Dixon. I don't know if you've heard of John Dixon's podcast uh, that had just landed this week about that whole question in the Bible. And so I pointed him in that direction and he, and he actually listened to it and said it was very good. And uh, I think he kind of dared me to invite our church to listen to that podcast. So so on his behalf, can I dare you to listen to that, that podcast? Um, and and it, it's interesting, I don't know, have you ever had a moment where you feel like somebody's trying to get you to say something? 
where, where they're trying to manoeuvre you into a position uh, and, uh, and, and trying to get you to say something in order to win an argument or something. That, technically, that's a, a psychological game. That's what's going on there. Uh, a psychological game happens when uh, people in the conversation end up playing a role rather than being able to deal with the complexity of what's actually going on. And, and that's exactly what happens as the Pharisees now come and try and trap Jesus. As we head to uh, Matthew 22, verse 15, uh, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, Jesus, in, in his words. They sent their disciples. They weren't brave enough to do it themselves, so they sent the, the young guys uh, to him along with the Herodians. Now that's interesting because the Herodians were those that supported Herod who was the beneficiary of Roman rule and the Pharisees were coming from a completely different worldview to the Herodians. So the fact that they're collaborating now against Jesus tells you they're worried about Jesus. Uh, and, you know, the, the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend in that situation is what's going on there. Uh, teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So what is Jesus what are, they, what are they, when they say that to Jesus, what are they trying to do as they, as they say all that stuff? What are they trying to do? What's that? They're trying to flatter him. And more than that, they're also trying to give him a role. They're trying to say, you're the kind of person who's tough enough to tell Caesar what, where to go, is kind of what they're trying to say. <laughs> you're the kind of person who won't care about politics. You'll say what needs to be said and knowing that if he says what they want him to say, he'll be in trouble. So they, they're trying to give him a role. And it's a, it's a classic example of a, of a psychological game where someone says, you are this kind of person, so then what about this? So keep, always keep, when someone's trying to tell you the kind of person you are, usually keep an eye out for that. That, that means there's some, they, they usually have something invested in you being the kind of person they're trying to tell you you are. So, tell us then, they say to Jesus, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, this is another handy household hint in terms of psychological games. Now, just to say, life, it is normal. Psychological games are a normal part of life. They're not a healthy part of life, but they are a normal part of life. We use them as ways of short-circuiting relationships sometimes and a way of avoiding pain in relationships. And a, another way to tell that a psychological game is happening is if someone's saying, it's either this or that. <laughs> it's either this or that. I've just been listening to... A, another podcast about what's going on in the Middle East that I found really helpful. Um, I posted it on uh, my Facebook page uh, of a Zionist Jewish rabbi uh, sharing uh, how that 
from his perspective, it was a life-changing thing as he started to meet Palestinian people and he realised the problem in the Middle East is that we keep thinking it's either this or that and that actually it's more complicated than that. And, and so I'd really encourage you to listen to that. And if, if anyone if, is ever telling you it's either this or that, that's usually a sign there's something going on. So here they, they, they are trying to make a very good... Uh, they're, they're trying to give Jesus a this or that thing. Is it okay to pay the taxes or not? There's only yes or no there. Usually, if someone's asking you yes or no, avoid the question, which is what Jesus does, because life... In my experience, life is always more complicated than two options. Have you noticed that? Life is complex. Life is always more complex than two options. So Jesus, this is verse 18, knowing their evil intent said, you hypocrites. We, we first came to this word in the Sermon on the Mount three years ago when we were looking at it. And it's the same word they used for actors. It's people who are putting on an act, people who are being fake is what the word, the word hypocrites. Jesus helps to introduce this into popular language. So if you uh, use the word hypocrite, you're actually quoting Jesus. You might want to point that out to people who call Christians hypocrites from time to time, but that's okay. Um, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he said to them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. What is going on here? Well, let's first of all have a look at this coin, shall we? So I think I might have to move. Yeah, there we go. I'm on the side of the screen. This is the actual coin they were handing out. I probably, if I thought ahead, I would, should have, I've got a physical one. My mum actually has a physical one at home uh, that my dad had. This is an actual denarius from that time. Uh, the, the, the side with the head on it uh, says Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, emperor. Uh, it's in, in Latin. Uh, so he's basically saying uh, Tiberius, son of God, is what that side says. And the other side says uh, Pontifex Maximus or high priest. So... This coin in and of itself would be offensive to Jewish people. The fact that some, there is a graven image of a person on it calling himself the son of God and on the other side it says he's the high priest. The fact that the Jewish people had access to that coin says something. Uh, but Jesus takes this coin and it also says that Jesus wasn't scared of this sort of stuff. He, he, he's quite happy to hold the coin, hand it up and said, look at this. And he says, whose image is on it? Now, obviously, it's Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar's image on it. And so they say Caesar's. So what's he saying then when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? Is he saying that Caesar gets some stuff and God gets other stuff? Is that what he's saying? It's actually really important for Christians to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because sometimes we divide the world into sacred and secular. We divide the world into holy and not holy. And that's actually not what Jesus is saying. 
He uses the language of image. And he's saying whose image is on the coin. Now, is there anywhere else in the Bible that talks about image at all? The Ten Commandments talk about image? What do the Ten Commandments talk about image? They, they did. They, they made an image of a golden calf and that was, didn't turn out well. And I, I think there's even a time, even earlier in the Bible, right in the first chapter that talks about image, doesn't it? Yeah, we are, we are all created in the image of God. Many commentators uh, agree that what Jesus is doing here is pointing out, uh, yeah, the coin, feel free. Uh, that, that's got Caesar's image on it. So that's the percentage, you know, that Caesar deserves. Uh, you, however, and, and in kind, rather than saying Caesar gets this bit over here and God gets this bit over here, he's almost like saying, yeah, this coin exists in a world. It's a little tiny bit of the world. Caesar is this little tiny bit of the world. Caesar may not even know it, but he, in fact is created in the image of God. And it's saying God's reality, God's uh, sphere, the stuff that God owns is bigger and more important and encompasses whatever coins you can come up with. It encompasses every other aspect of your life. This is really important to get to because sometimes Christians will want to argue about whether we should pay a tithe or not, whether God gets 10%. Uh, And... There's all kinds of books written about it, and people arguing one side or another. But you need to hear this. In the New Testament, it's clear. It's all God's. God doesn't get 10%. For Jesus to be Lord means he is Lord of all your finances, not just 10% of your finances. Similarly, with your time, it is really important. I think Sabbath is a really important principle, the idea to take a day off and be with God and worship, that's a really important principle in the Bible. But the idea that God only gets one day out of seven, that's not a biblical principle. Jesus wants to be Lord of your whole life, is the biblical principle. And so, we need to understand, as we relate to the government, yep, uh, we need to understand, from a Christian perspective, we need to listen to the government, give the government what's theirs, but we see that all governments come under the rule of Jesus, that all governments are subject to God and are in the the bigger sphere. And so what Jesus said was, yeah, feel free, give to Caesar what is due to Caesar, but understand what is due to Caesar is just a small percentage of what is due to God. Your whole life created in the image of God is due to God. A great reform scholar, Prime Minister of Holland, author, uh, a really remarkable man by the name of Abraham Kuyper, said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry mine. And the way God does his sums is, one of the things you'll find is the more you hang out with Jesus, 
the more he's going to want to talk to you about the bits of your life you don't want to give him. The bits of your life that are not on the table, that'll be the stuff that's holding you back. So this is how it works. Ultimately, God is in charge of everything. So the Pharisees' assistants go back with the tails between their legs uh, and so the Sadducees front up. They say, all right, that didn't work. Let's, let's, we'll have a go. And, and again, this is another attempt to trap Jesus with the words. This is another attempt to prove that they're smarter than Jesus and to get Jesus in trouble. And kind of from their perspective to win some points against the Pharisees too because the Sadducees, they love the Old Testament, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament, and they didn't think that anything else was authoritative. And in fact, what they... Because the, Pharisee, the, the Pharisees had a whole lot of commentaries about the Bible, and they saw them as authoritative. But the Sadducees no, said, no, no, only the first five books of the Bible are the things we need to listen to. And they said, there's no resurrection in the first five books of the Bible. And that's why we don't believe in the resurrection. And so coming into this conversation, it's really important. It's, in this world we are in at the moment, I, I said this at our uh, ministry leaders meeting yesterday. I, one, of the th- one of the disturbing things we have to come to terms with that I'm still processing, and I, I, I hate it, but I think we have to, have to deal with it, is that the... I don't, I, don't even, I don't even know how to say this, that the one of the, if not the most trusted source of information and opinion forming for people under the age of 30 is TikTok. Now, I know half the people in our church don't even know what that is. Uh, but there is this, there's a, a shift that's happening and there are all kinds of weird truth claims being made on TikTok and on social media. And we in this generation are being bombarded with so many truth claims from so many different directions that we need to be firmly grounded in Scripture. We need to be firmly grounded in the Bible. This is what the Sadducees thought they had it all over Jesus. They thought he, they, they knew the Bible better than he did. He's about to demonstrate something. But right up front, we want to say, it's just so important. It's, it's so easy to be too busy to get into the Bible. It's so easy to be too, too busy to, to do Bible study. But can I tell you, I don't know that there's been another time in history where it's been more important to be memorising Scripture and getting into the Bible and understanding the significance of it. We're actually about to launch, for the first time in the history of the Baptist churches in Tasmania, a Bible college next year. Uh, and, and it'll be open to everybody, not just people who want to be pastors. Uh, we'll, we'll actually be doing a six-month certificate course that you can do uh, in the context of your local church. You don't have to get, go anywhere. You, you, you can do it from home and in the context of you know, helping out the local church. I, it is really important to get into the Bible because you're going to get all kinds of weird truth claims. And we, are, we saw, in my view, we saw in the referendum uh, uh, hopeless, hopelessly mismatched campaigns. The, the no campaign was far more effective at using TikTok 
than the Yes campaign was. They really were. They were, they were brilliant. The, the marketing campaign behind the No campaign, uh, which my son Josh was very proudly working for, which we, you know, we have, we, we have the occasional conversation over, over meals. Uh, they, were, they were so much because they understood that things have changed and the things that form opinion have changed. And we as the church have to catch up. Social media is shaping things in a way that we need to catch up with. So, so here we have the Sadducees coming and they have their opinions. They're going to throw that at Jesus. And so they say, teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Things have changed. Uh, that wouldn't go down so well these days, would it? Um, so, but here we go, we'll keep going. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened and the, to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh, finally the woman died. <laughs> and so they're saying, so, uh, when they get to heaven, whose wife is she? Uh, uh, and I imagine there's a bit of a smile on Jesus' face at this point. <laughs> you idiots. <laughs> um, now, as I said, the, the Sadducees were the aristocratic. They were kind of the wealthy, high priestly party who saw themselves as powerful and uh, they cooperated with the Romans. They, they, they liked power uh, and they didn't, as we've already said, they didn't believe in life after death. Uh, Jesus said, let me just explain to you why you're wrong. And this is where it's, it's so important for us. There are going to be all kinds of people wanting to tell you stories about what truth is. There are all kinds of people wanting to tell you stories about what truth is. It, was, it really has been a fascinating exercise. I, I can see why some Christians talk about what they call the Benedict Option where they talk about withdrawing from society and avoiding conflict and just focusing on the little Christian enclave. But I, my, my mum pointed out to me, uh, I, don't, I don't think at, as Christians we actually have that option. The book of Hebrews says, my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. It is tempting. Now, sometimes Christians get persecuted because we're idiots and, and we are saying things and doing things that don't respect individuality or people, and that's sad. But sometimes you will find that people just disagree and get angry uh, and say things about Christians because we believe in the power of prayer, for instance. And it's been a fascinating week, just seeing that uh, at the same time as we're getting 50 people desperate for hope and asking for prayer, we probably had about 10 people a bit angry and a bit frustrated. Uh, and I, and I, I think it, it's really important for us not to shrink back, but to be able to be firm enough in the truth and to, I, like I said, I think like never before, we need to be able to do the work. You need to be able to say, like Jesus said, you're wrong and here's why you're wrong. 
Now, Jesus still loved these people as he's talking to them, but he's explaining to them why they're wrong. Sometimes it's easy. I had to work really hard, honestly, to not respond to some of the things that came up on social media uh, and also to make sure that I wasn't reacting. The moment Christians step over a line and react and therefore dehumanise, we've lost. We have to always love no matter what. So Jesus says, you're in error because you don't actually know the Bible. That's why I, I actually think, it's, I don't know if there's ever been a more important time to know your Bible. I really don't. You don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. And here we start to see this incredible hope we look forward to. And this is the basis of Christian hope. That there's going to be a moment that's quite different to this one. And it's going to be a moment where you'll still be you, but you'll be more you than you've ever been. And you won't be defined by your relationships. You won't be defined by your background. You'll be defined by you. I love this little throwaway line in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2.17, at the end of each letter to the church, by the way, next year we're going to study Revelation together. Uh, I've, I've been avoiding it till now. It's a scary thing to do. I know, and not everyone will agree, but, but we want to, the book of Revelation was written to the churches for a reason, so we want to work out what the reason was and see if we can hear it together, so we'll hold that. But to start with, um, Revelation 2.17, here is Jesus speaking to one of the churches and there's this incredible little promise about what heaven or the experience of meeting him in the new, this new creation is going to be like. He says, To the one who is victorious, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Some people think that when you get to heaven or when you get to this new heaven and new earth reality, you're going to be omniscient. It's not true. Only God knows everything. You're still going to be you. But you're going to be more you than you've ever been. And there's this promise that Jesus is kind of like, he's saying, I'm now going to tell you, because for the Hebrew person, the name is who you really are. It's, it names you. It, name, it names your character. It's not just a, this is what my parents like to think, or this is what was on the soap operas at the time. No, this is, your name captures your character. And Jesus is going to give you a new name that is going to be so deep, so rich, that you won't be able to fully communicate it to anybody else. But for the first time in your life, you will be seen. And you will know yourself and Jesus will know you in a completely different way. And so what Jesus is pointing out to these Sadducees is, you guys, you you think that the future is just going to be an extension of the past. No, there is just going to be this moment of discontinuity that we can look forward to. And you will be 
more you. I, I don't know if you've seen the read the last battle by C.S. Lewis. This sense that life gets deeper and richer and fuller the more you hang out in that new earth, new heavens and new earth reality. Jesus goes on though, and he says, "But about the resurrection of the dead." So at this point, he's not talking about the new heavens and new earth at this point. He's saying about the, what happens to people immediately after they die. And he points them back to Exodus 3.6. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. So what's he saying? Well, he's pointing out the tense. He's pointing out the grammar. And he said, I, God's saying, I, I wasn't, he's not saying it's not past tense, it's present tense. He's saying, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they're all still alive. It says they're right in Exodus, it's present tense. And he's saying, there is life after death, is what he's saying. And I, you know, whenever I do a funeral, I tend to default back to uh, Hebrews 12, this idea that there's this great cloud of witnesses, there's this sense in which, and Paul says, it's better by far for me to be with Christ. There is this incredible truth that for those who have died in Christ, their life continues. But one of the things that we underplay a bit is that that's not actually the point. That's not the point of the Bible. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that there's life after life after death. That, that there is going to be a moment when Jesus comes back and the heavens and earth are going to be made new. There'll be this new heaven, a new earth reality that is physical and real. And at that point, that's where... I get the sense this is where in, in Revelation it's talking about Jesus naming you in a different kind of way. You'll be more you than you've ever been. And in some senses that there is what you do now matters for then in a way, and we need to spend more time unpacking all that, but it, it has eternal consequences. But the truth is there will be no more pain. Isn't that good? There will be no more suffering. And I, I love, if you, want to, if you want to know more about this, Paul writes this great chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 about it all. And he talks about the, the new body you're going to have and how it's all going to be different. But because that is true, do you know how he finishes off that chapter? As he talks about this whole new reality we look forward to, the life after, life after death reality we look forward to. Do you know what's so exciting about it? It means that what you do now matters. He finishes that chapter by saying, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Because we look forward to an incredible future, your labour in the Lord now is not in vain. Hang on. It's going to be better. 
but your labour now is not in vain. And so Jesus is telling the Sadducees, boys, because it was only boys, um, you get it wrong. You've got, you, you've got to learn to read your Bible. I think he'd be wanting to say to us too, make sure you read your Bible. There's going to be all kinds of people coming to you with all kinds of stories, getting a bit angry that you have hope when they don't have hope. But there's also going to be a whole lot of people who are desperate for hope, as we found this week. And who kind of know, even if they don't completely believe, who kind of know that prayer makes a difference. And we've got to make sure that we're not like the ones who shrink back because we're scared of the people who might think differently to us. We've got to make sure we're not the ones who, you know, strike back and try and react and see opposition as therefore de- and de- react to opposition and therefore dehumanise them. No, we, we, can't, we can't get to a point where we stop loving. But we do need to be ready to step forward with Jesus and love like he loves. It's only possible. You can't, like trying to do this in your own strength would be dumb. Doesn't work. It's only possible because you know you are loved by him. So can I encourage you? Let's keep praying for those who've asked for prayer. We'll we'll get back to them this week and let them know that uh, we have been praying for them. But, But let's just keep praying. Let's make sure we don't just avoid the, com- the complexity of life. But let's make sure, in a world that's full of all kinds of different stories, let's make sure that we follow Jesus' example and know the Scriptures, know the story, and know the incredible future we're called to. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks that you didn't get sucked into games. And forgive us for the times we do. And can you, can you train us to be people who don't get sucked into psychological games? Thank you for the way you are firmly grounded in the truth. And can you help us be people who are firmly grounded in the truth? Thank you for the incredible future you pointed the Sadducees to. Can you help us be people who are firmly grounded in the truth of the future? you call us to. Thank you for the journey you've got us on. And and again, as a church family, we pray for each and every person who has asked for prayer this week. Can Can you help them know that even if the answers haven't been what they wanted, can you help them know that you are with them and that you love them and help them have an experience of your presence and your love. And we ask this in your name. Amen.